It's time for architecture, coffee, and ink. Hello, this is Hollywood C, and you're listening to Architecture, Coffee, and Ink, a podcast dedicated to introducing concepts, detailing out designs, and tackling the architecture you might not realize the meaning behind. I'm your hostess, and I'm here today to start introducing you to the designs that make you wonder why. So I ask you to brew your coffee, grab your sketchbook and pen, and let's begin. Hello everyone and welcome to the final episode of the New York City Art. We are officially wrapping up this segment and I thought that today's episode would be a nice change of pace by going history light. Instead of my usual red string on a chalkboard history lesson, we are going to be talking briefly about two modern design projects on the west side of Manhattan. This will be a slightly shorter episode as later this week, this month's Erie Arc is coming out on Friday and it is definitely going to be a longer episode episode, which I know is technically in February, but that's just how it worked out with Central Park being divided into two. Admittedly, it will be in New York State, but it's definitely a strong departure from everything that we've been talking about. So the episode is going to be divided into two parts. First, we're going to be discussing the High Line, then Little Island. Each of these projects is equally as important, and one day I might come back to them. Just remember, as always, to always check your sources, check your facts, and most importantly, check me. I should never be your only source of information. We are starting the episode with a brief discussion on the High Line, and we are going to start with one of my favorite things to photograph, train tracks. This project starts in the 1800s when trains were being used to carry food across the city. It was part of the New York Central Railroad and was originally flat on the ground. This would have been a horrible thing as it would result in many deaths. So many that the 10th Avenue would actually end up being nicknamed Death Avenue according to Highline.org and the Highline, a nonprofit by the same name. Well in the 500s by the year 1910, though it would be another 10 years before a task force was created to protect the citizens. This task force was called the West Side Cowboys of Death Avenue, and they worked from 1920 until 1941. At the time, they didn't really see another way around the issue. The railroad was essential as it hit yards, processing plants, and factories, and was a pretty essential component of moving food through the city. Unlike its modern day status, the west side was a pretty poor neighborhood. It couldn't afford moving the lines up as they had no choice but to be at grade or level on the ground. So the cowboys were outfitted with flags and lanterns and attempted to keep as many people as they could safe. Unfortunately, it was not enough and according to experience first, it took 500 children marching after the death of a classmate to start bringing an end to the tracks. In 1924, all street level or at-grade crossings were removed, and a high line was built in its place. However, it wouldn't see the launch of its first train across the elevated tracks until 1933. An advantage to this was that due to the elevation, the train could run directly through some building, which 
talk about an express stop. This causes a boom that lasts just until trucking takes over America. The interstate system had been implemented in America in 1953 during the Dwight Eisenhower administration, which was actually inspired due to his own personal attempts to cross the country as part of a military expedition when he was serving in the U.S. Army. As is famously quoted, he described the efforts as going, quote, through darkest America with truck and tank, end quote. So needless to say, he was feeling particularly inspired to develop a better way to move through the country. He did such a good job that it eventually led to the rise of truck transporting goods and the eventual decline of trains. Demolition started as early as the 60s when part of the line was destroyed. Though it would limp along until the 80s, the structure got so bad that in 1983, the West Side Rail Development Foundation was created to save the structure. A series of laws would go in its favor and against, and it wasn't until 1999 that we see the first of the modern history. The Friends of the High Line was created with the motivation of both preserving and developing the line into public space. They would take the first steps forward in 2003 with a design competition for just ideas and inspiration that would eventually lead to the 2004 competition. This included 52 teams to actually design the park. So basically, first is general public inspiration and excitement, and then you have the design teams in a second competition. It is a pretty good marketing strategy in my opinion, but the caveat of the second competition was that the final results needed to be the strategies and bare framework of how they would move the project forward if selected. Some pretty large firms participated, including the eventual winner and designers, Field Operations, Dillard, Schofield, and Renfro and Piet Odoff. Ground broke in 2006, though the ownership remained underneath the CSX Transportation until 2009, when the first section of the High Line was officially open to the public. Work would continue and will keep occurring, with the last edition opened on June 23, 2003, and others still to come. Right now, the High Line is 1.45 miles long and has over 500 species of plants, including trees and over 100,000 individual plants. The High Line holds art, programs, educational opportunities, and allows commuters, visitors, and neighbors all to use the space equally. Construction has taken a while as each section has everything removed and tagged to allow the artifacts to become part of the design. According to Field Operations website, the project sees a total of 7 million visitors annually. They call it, quote, a strolling garden in the sky, end quote. Little Island is located on the Hudson River as part of the Hudson River Park and rises from the remains of Pier 54. This is actually going to be the longest part of the episode today. As I mentioned in previous episodes in this series, this part of the state had at one time been the hunting grounds of the Lenape, and this particular area would also function as seasonal grounds. Additionally, it would also be a part of a trade route until they were forced to leave the area due to settlers. Since I have already explained this history, in depth several times, we're actually going to skip forward in history to the 19th and 20th centuries. During and after the Industrial Revolution, the world sees a rapid increase in industry and manufacturing, and the Hudson River waterfront tags along with it, as in New York City, and this port in particular, become extremely important and a source of wealth. One of these was Pier 54, which operated a line for transatlantic trips. This company was called the British Cunard White Star Line, and 
and operated between 1910 and 1935. This port also played a part of history in several other ways during this time, according to littleisland.org. It was the location survivors disembarked the RMS Carpathia after being rescued from the ill-fated RMS Titanic and frigid waters of the Atlantic in 1912, and would see off the RMS Lusitania on her final voyage, where she would be sunk as part of World War One. However, the first decline starts as ocean liners get left behind as industry as a whole starts to shift out of the city. New businesses filled the spaces in between, but not to the same effect as the previous industrial boom. However, that doesn't mean it was completely abandoned. It actually became a place of safety and shelter for the LGBTQ plus community and was part of pride festivities for some 25 years. It would be left largely abandoned by the city officials until the 1973 collapse of the West Side Highway. This would spark a cleanup plan that would be canceled when concerns were raised about the impact changes would have on the bass fish that inhabited the river. This area was actually involved with their mating habits, so this was a serious enough concern that efforts were stopped. The history of Pier 54 would mimic the history of the city and parallel much of the story of Central Park. During the 70s and 80s, the pier would slip between the cracks and maintenance fell to the wayside as the city shifted its priorities elsewhere. And then in 1998, it was added to the Hudson River Park when it was created, where it expanded its community service to events and concerts. Unfortunately, these all came to a halt with the destruction that came in 2012. The city saw Hurricane Sandy hit and the years of minimal maintenance finally took their toll as Pier 54 was severely damaged. As the city pulled itself together and issued repairs, several individuals saw an opportunity. The Hudson River Park in Barry Dillard of Dillard von Versteinberg Family Foundation kicked the project off in 2013. The Park Trust had approached Dillard as he had an office in the area. The Family Foundation would actually be the primary financers of this project. It was basically a huge gift. While the project was always intended to revitalize the area, they took the opportunity to reimagine it as well. They had a design competition, which had several requests included in the brief. It needed to have public and outdoor space, particularly space geared towards performance. It opened on May 21st, 2021 to a respectable 1 million visitors per year and reached a total of 2.4 acres of innovative landscape, architecture, and public space. While it was isolated due to COVID, the park is designed with education and public service in mind. The design was a combination of Heather Wick Studios and MNLA, which stands for Matthew Nielsen Landscape Architect. Additional companies include Weeks Marine, Mulsiller Rutledge, and Fort Miller Company. The entire island is built on concrete piles coming directly from the Hudson River, all around which you can see the remains of Pier 54 and 56. These wooden remains were actually left to maintain the habitat that had been growing around the pier throughout their long inhabitation. In fact, they were so determined to protect the natural environment, they had a five-month break for the local fish to migrate in their construction schedule. Further accommodation was provided throughout the entire three years it was being Built. They had a three-week probing phase to figure out exactly how deep the concrete piles needed to be, leading to a three-inch margin of error allowed per pile. And these aren't small piles. These are massive. The whole structure is held up by 267 precast concrete piles, half of which are designed to hold up the quote 
tulips, as their website and Heatherwhite called them. They, in turns, would support various weights and together would end up creating the surface of the island. This difference in the number of petals and the size played a part in the weight they held. They were all prefabricated some 130 miles up the river, where they were taken from inland to the port of Comans and shipped down the river four at a time on a barge, where they were finally erected in place. A total of 132 of these tulip pots were used, and my favorite part is that each of them were distinct from the others, and each over 75 tons all within three inches of precision. I can't help but love the symbolism. The inspiration behind the design was actually from a leaf floating on the water, and I can genuinely see it in the overall flow of the surface of the park. The tessellating pattern really helps break up the wind and provides a shelter within itself to create the optimal theater. The park is open daily, and when visiting, you can see some of the 350 species of plants or enjoy a performance at the 687-seat amphitheater or the smaller 200 seat state, there were 66,000 bulbs and shrubs and some 114 trees. And these aren't small trees either. Some of the species used will grow to be around 60 feet tall at their prime. One of the artifacts from its past is a steel archway at the South Bridge entrance, which is actually the remains of the Connard White Star Building. Issues and legal battles inflamed the price of the entire project to an astounding $260 million. The project was originally $35 million when permission was originally given over the design in 2016. However, legal and permitting issues, which are the bane of any project, reared their heads, and people against the project even brought in the fish that had stopped the renovations before. At one point, this battle was so bad that Dillard had actually stepped away from the project. However, it was finally built in May 2021. He estimated in an article that the Family Foundation is going to spend around $380 million by the time they finally step away from the project and its maintenance falls on the River Trust and public funding. This number is from the original money spent plus the $120 million that they have already pledged for maintenance. They also provide free tickets to programs, giving those who normally wouldn't be able the chance to experience the art and education programs they offer. It is gorgeous and I am so excited to pull out my pictures again for the blog post later this week. If you haven't been, make this a stop in your trip to the city. Thank you once again. And this concludes this week's main episode. But remember, this is shorter than usual, as I will be releasing a much longer episode on Friday. So this week, as well as last week, you're getting double the episode, kind of. Just remember, please rate, review, and subscribe everywhere you get your podcast from. This really helps the show out and helps us grow if you share it and bring a little architecture into someone's life. We are on iHeartRadio, YouTube Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and more. You can find me on Instagram at Architecture Coffee and ink join the facebook group email the show at architecture coffee and ink at gmail.com or the blog at architecture coffee and ink.com or visit the blog at architecture coffee and ink.com architecture coffee and ink is a hollywood c studios llc production i am excited to meet with all my designers dreamers and diy enthusiasts next time but in the meantime may your coffee mugs be full and your ink wells never run dry